We're going to continue to worship the Lord with our gifts and our tithes and our offerings this morning. And this week I got a, an email, and there's actually, this is crazy, another Radiant Church is starting this week in Georgia. Not affiliated with us in any way as far as the Radiant name, but man, people are picking out phenomenal names lately for all of their churches. Uh, but they're a part of the association of related churches that we support every month, and part of what you all give is allowing us to continue to see more and more churches planted all across our country, and that's a really great thing to be supporting. So Father, this morning, we're so grateful again that you first gave to us, and we pray for Radiant Church in Georgia, Lord, and we pray that today as they start, that there would be many who put their faith in you, that there would be many who are sick emotionally, uh, physically, mentally, God, and that you would bring healing to them. God, that you would bring peace, Jesus. We pray that you would be holy to all those who come through those doors and that you'd encourage the team that's there, Father, and that they would see fruit for their labor that's come, gone on so far. But Jesus, also, you continue to fill them with vision and with perseverance and faith for all the things that you're going to do through that church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And as the buckets are being passed around, a couple announcements real quick. First, if you're new here today, uh, thank you so much for being our guest. We know there's a lot of things you could have done, and you decided to be here with us on this foggy morning, and we're so grateful for that. You might have received a communication card when you came in, uh, and if you did, we'd love to have you fill it out and turn it in at the information table, and if you didn't, you can grab one there. And what will happen is you'll get a free Radiant t-shirt as our way of saying thank you so much for being here with us today. And then this week, I'll shoot you an email just welcoming you to the church and seeing if there's anything that we can do for you. Uh, also, we have our Next Steps Engage class today. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to, to get involved in what it is that we do here and help make room for more people to, to come in and find Jesus at Radiant Church, we'd love to have you go there. It's just uh, 1145. We have a meeting out by the Next Steps room. And you'll be able to meet with the different ministry directors here, hear a little bit of the vision for what their department does, and then how it is that you can get involved in serving with them. If you have your Bibles with you today, turn to, I forgot where we're turning to. Let me scroll through my notes. It's somewhere in the Bible. Philippians chapter 3 and Luke chapter 7. Philippians 3 and Luke chapter 7. And we're going through our series, Seek, and the idea behind it comes from Hebrews, and I'm telling you another verse, it'll be on the screen. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what that is saying is that there is a reward that comes from seeking after God. That there are things that we will only see in our lives and in our family and sphere of influence if we seek after God. And so we've committed ourselves to 21 days of prayer and fasting and seeking after God to see his power exerted in our life, to get to know him more relationally. And uh, we've been fasting as a part of this so that we can continue to block out some of the other voices in our life that are competing for our affections and our attention and be able to more fully hear the voice of God speaking to us. Uh, so if you've been a part of that, that's awesome. Remember, we want you to pick a time and pick a place where every day you're going to spend uh, some time just really seeking after Jesus, worshiping him, praying uh, as a part of your fasting. And I uh, encourage you to pick a fast. If you maybe cheated on it this week or maybe you quit on your fast this week, it's a new day. There's new mercy for you. Uh, jump back on that. I was almost taken out by a cupcake yesterday. I am not kidding. That thing was looking me in the eye, and it was like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, get away from me, Satan, you know. And uh, I was able to resist because there was a couple other people that were from the church, and I didn't want that strengthened me to overcome the temptation because they can't see their pastor breaking his fast. Uh, that would not be inspiring. So thank you for guilting me and shaming me by your presence to overcome the cupcake. But this week, we're going to talk about passion. 
passions that we have. See, all people, we're all people of passion because that's a part of the way that God created us. There is not a single person in the entire world that is without passion. And there's always a, a motivating passion, a main passion that we have that's the driving force behind our life. My son just turned five, which means that I was up late putting together a toy for him because uh, every year he wants something elaborate and I'll get it, forgetting that I have to assemble it and I have no ability to assemble things. So it involves hours of frustration and almost ruining my marriage and my salvation all at the same time to finally get it together. But every year it's something different. Like a couple years ago, he was into uh, construction equipment. So everything he wore was all construction. If you saw him, like everything was caterpillar, uh, like trucks and excavators and bulldozers. All of his books were construction equipment. Uh, everything was just construction equipment. It's all he played all day. He was passionate about it. Now he's in a dinosaur phase where he's going around and he's growling and roaring at everybody and everything. So if you have a kid in the three to fives, my apologies. Uh, he'll outgrow it one of these days. Um, but everything's dinosaurs. His shirts are all dinosaurs. It's all he talks about. It's, I mean, he is just passionate about dinosaurs right now. And we're all like that. Maybe not about dinosaurs and construction equipment, but there's something that we're passionate about. Uh, I love CrossFit people. Have you ever met a CrossFit person? If you have, you know it because they told you 17 times in the first three seconds that they did CrossFit because they're just passionate about it. Everything that they do is about CrossFit. They've always got their shirts on. They've always got their little, you know, water thermoses or whatever it is they're carrying around. Uh, car people, you know car people when you see them. You know cat people when you see cat people because they have sweaters with cats on them. But everybody is passionate about something. Everybody has a driving passion. Uh, for me, it's been many things over the course of my life. I'm a, I'm a phase person. I really get into something real solid for a little bit, and then I get into something else real solid for a little bit, and it drove my parents crazy. Now it drives my wife crazy. Uh, but that's just the way every one of us is wired. There's something, and you might not know what it is. Ask one of your friends. They know what the driving passion in your life is. Uh, look at your social media posts and see what it is that you're posting about. That will reveal to you what it is that you are passionate about. And my question for you this morning is, what is that passion in your life? What's that driving thing that you are all in on, that central and focused point of your life? Is that passion Jesus? Are we as a people, are we as Christians, if you're not a believer in Jesus, clearly it's not going to be your passion. It shouldn't be. But if you're a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is God, that he came and that he laid his life down for you, that he brought you salvation, he's adopted you into his family, that he has plans and purposes for you, that he's poured out blessings on your life that you can't even comprehend, that you can't even contain, are we passionate about the one who's done this for us? And not just do you like Jesus or do you love Jesus, but are you passionate about Jesus? Are you passionate about who he is? His attributes, his character, his personality, everything he is. Are you passionate about what it is that he's done? Are you passionate about his call on you to make disciples and to reach our city, to reach our families, to reach our workplaces and every sphere of influence that we have? Are we passionate about seeing other people come into that same saving knowledge, being made a part of the family of Jesus and receiving blessings and healing, freedom, restoration and redemption? Is that the driving focus, center point of our life? that drives the words we say, the things that we do, the, the ways that we spend our money and our time, the way that we leverage our relationships. Are we passionate about Jesus? I think most of us here would agree that we should be. 
And I think most of us say, yeah, I want my life to be used by God. I want to be just completely uh, apprehended by his love and live a life that's mightily used by him where I'm glorifying him with everything that I do and I'm using my life to be purposeful and impactful in the kingdom of God. But a lot of times we don't know how it is that we get to that point. We know where we are, we know where we want to go and what it is that God's called us to, but we don't know how to get from where we are to where it is that God's taking us. And when we look at the great heroes of the faith that are recorded in history, I think some of the greatest heroes of the faith are the ones that we will never meet or have ever heard about until we step into eternity. But there are a lot of people, when you look at some of your heroes of the faith, the thing that I can see in every single one of them from every time, from, uh, from every culture, every race, whatever it might be, there's one unifying thing that you see in every single one of these lives, and it's that they were passionate about Jesus. I meet lots of people, and this is one of the most frustrating conversations that I have as a pastor. They come and they say, you know what, I love Jesus, I'm passionate about him, I want to be used for his glory, I want to do something really great for the kingdom. I'm like, yeah, that's great, that's what we want. Like, you're getting it, you're understanding the reason behind your life, you're starting to step into God's call on you. They say, so I got to go to seminary, and I'm like, why do you, what? Like, are you planning on being a pastor, or, or what are you planning to do? Oh, no, I just want to do something, but, you know, before God can use me, I just feel like I need to get my MDiv or whatever it might be. And I'm like, what? what? When did this become a qualification for being used mightily by God? And I am in no way trying to knock education. Education is phenomenal. I'm committed to being a lifelong learner. It's something that I'm continuing to do courses all the time because I just want to know more about God. I want to understand more of the history of the church. I want to understand more theology. I just I love philosophy, understanding those sorts of things. But that doesn't qualify you to be used by Jesus. Not every person needs those things in their life. It's great for some people. If God's called you down that course, then follow after it. But let your passion for Jesus be what motivates you to walk down that road. Don't ever think that God can't use you until you receive some sort of an education or a knowledge or that you jump through certain hoops. God's not up there in heaven looking down and saying, I, I really want to use you, but my hands are tied until you get that MDiv. I just can't do anything with you. What I want people to start at, that first place of where they say, I want to be used by God greatly, then the first thing is, then you've got to get passionate about Jesus. That's where it all starts in your life. That's what's going to take you down that road. Uh, I love uh, Ravi Zacharias. He's one of my favorite people to listen to. Every one of his books, I love uh, you know, listening to his presentations that he's doing in the different universities. And when I hear him speak, it makes me feel like I am the dumbest person on the face of this earth. I feel like I am an idiot. It's, you know, sometimes when you're around someone great, it encourages and inspires you. It's so depressing when I hear him speak. Because I know I will never be as smart as he is. I will never have that gift that he has. But what's greater than his incredible intellectual knowledge and gift that he has is his passion for Jesus. That's what comes across stronger than any of the arguments that he's able to make, stronger than any of the, the intellectual prowess that he has, is his passion for Jesus. And that's what God's using. God's wired every one of us differently. He's gifted every one of us differently to use us in different lanes in life. But the one thing that every single one of us has to have at the core of who we are, if we want to be used by Jesus, is a passion for him and a passion for his kingdom cause. When you look at the Pharisees and the disciples, I love this. The disciples are known, as several times in scripture it points out that the people look at them and they say, these are common, uneducated men. That's how they're remembered for all time. And, and really the word means idiot uh, is the way that it would be the common translation. is These are common idiots. How is it that they're turning the world upside down? 
Because when God went to choose people to be his disciples, the ones that he poured into and invested the most in, he chose the common people. And through that, it was evident that it wasn't the people who were doing something great. It was the God who chose them and the God who dwelt in them that was accomplishing his purposes in their life. When you look at the Pharisees and the scribes, what were they known for? They had the greatest educations. They had all the knowledge in the world. They had the finest religious education that anyone could ever have. But so many times in the stories that we read in the Gospels, it's they're the ones that are on the, the whipping end of every parable and every story. They're the ones that are constantly opposing Jesus. They're the ones that, that are trying to kill God. Those that had been trained to know God were those who then became the ones that were trying to kill God and stop what it was that God wanted to do. Why was that? Because they might have had knowledge, but they didn't have passion for Jesus in their hearts. And knowledge without passion is a dangerous thing in our lives because what knowledge does is it puffs up. It causes us to be proud. It causes us to start to think that we have a qualification, that now God's going to do something great inside of us because of what we have attained for ourselves. But that's not what qualifies us. What qualifies us is that God shows us and that we've become passionate about who he is and what it is that he's going to do. And the disciples, uh, all but one of them, ended up giving their life to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They suffered horribly. They were jailed. They were in prison. They were beheaded. They were stabbed. They were shot. Not shot. Shot with arrows. Um, <laughs> they had a time machine. No. But... It was that passion for Jesus that continued to drive them and to cause them to when things got tough, when they had opportunities to turn back, when they could have pursued their own comfort. It's what drove them so that they would never turn back because they were so passionate about Jesus that they were willing to endure any sort of torment on this earth so that they could proclaim to those that God had put a love in their heart for the good news that God loves them, that God has provided salvation for them, and that there is life that is found in Jesus Christ, the King. And it wasn't their knowledge that enabled them to do that. It wasn't their gifting that enabled them to do that. It was the passion for Jesus that drove them in all of that. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. He's one of the most educated people that you know, God has ever used, and God uses for a great thing. But it wasn't his education and his knowledge, his head knowledge, that made him used by God. In fact, when he was just pursuing a head knowledge of God, he was the one that was going around killing all of the Christians. His knowledge didn't lead him to the place of repentance. His knowledge didn't lead him to the place of where he was humbled and living his life for God. It was that encounter that he had with Jesus that arrested his heart where he was so filled up with love and with passion for Jesus that when a prophet came to him and said that you're going to be bound up and you're going to be thrown in jail, if you go to Rome to preach the gospel, Paul said, then so be it. Now, I'm not passionate about being bound up and thrown in Roman jails. That's not something, if you just say, hey, this is, if you go to Rome, this is going to happen. You're like, I'm out. If I just have a head knowledge of Jesus, if I just got my MDiv and I'm like, all right, I'm ready for my first assignment. Go to Rome and get thrown in jail? No way. I'm going to go, I'm going to be an econ major. This was a bad idea. But because he was so passionate about Jesus and what it was that God had called him to, he was saying, it doesn't matter what price I pay, I'm going to be obedient to what it is that God has called me to do. See, knowledge never produces obedience inside of our lives. Passion does. We all have way more knowledge than we have obedience in our lives. 
But that knowledge isn't going to lead you to obedience. It's a passion for Jesus that's going to lead you to obedience. So when Paul's call, when obedience for Paul meant that he would have to go and lay down his life, he still did it because he loved his life. I mean, he loved not his life even unto death, but he was willing to go to his own demise so that he could preach the good news of Jesus and plant churches all across Asia Minor. And he could go and he could preach to governors, he preached to kings, and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to Nero himself. And he was willing to lay his life down so that he could do that because of his love for God. In Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul says this, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. What Paul is saying is that everything I had before, the wealth, the status, the fame, the approval of other people, the education, uh, all of these things that I had, I count them as garbage. Not that they were bad things, but when you compare it to the value of knowing Jesus, it can't compare. There are great things that you might be passionate about in this life. You might be passionate about your family. I hope you are. I hope you're passionate. If you're married, about your marriage. I hope you're passionate about your kids. I hope you're passionate about your friends and the gospel community that you're a part of. I hope that you're passionate about outreach and ministry. I hope that you're passionate about justice issues. I hope that you're passionate for the poor. I hope you're passionate for the oppressed and the downtrodden and the orphans and the widows. I hope that you're passionate about these things. But all of these things, even as good as they are, don't compare if you give yourself entirely to these, but detach yourself from first and foremost being passionate about Jesus, then everything else ends up being a waste in the end. Because the greatest thing in all of this world is knowing Jesus. That's it. And I'm willing to lay down everything else in this life, everything else that I'm passionate about. It's all garbage when compared to the infinite and insurpassable value of knowing Jesus. John Wesley is one of my heroes of the faith from a child growing up in the Methodist church. He was educated he was trained, and he was sent out as a missionary to the colonies. And he was a complete and utter failure. And as he's going back to England, knowing that he was a failure, not understanding how he could be such a failure when he was so qualified, there's a storm going on, and he thinks that they're all going to die, and everybody else in the boat thinks that they're going to die. And there's this group of Moravians, and they're sitting there, and they're worshiping Jesus. They're joyful in the middle of the storm. And he looks at that, and he says, what is going on here? What is different about these common people that I don't have? And he goes and he lives with them. And they have a, a prayer meeting that goes on for over 100 years continuously. They're praying and they're worshiping Jesus. And it says that in that moment, his heart became strangely warmed, is what he records in his journal. As his heart awoke to a love and a passion for Jesus. After he became passionate about Jesus, he came back to the colonies and he rode up and down. He rode over a quarter of a million miles on horseback going up and down the colonies preaching the gospel to tens and tens of thousands of people leading them to make a decision for Jesus. What changed about him, it wasn't that he went and got more qualified and went through a system or got a strategy. It was that he became passionate about Jesus. 
And he said that I'd go and I'd preach and I'd just light myself on fire for all the world to watch me burn. That was John Wesley's strategy. And he shaped the course of America more greatly than just a few other people maybe had a greater influence than he had on the United States of America. And it all started with that heart encounter with God where he became passionate about knowing Jesus. And the same is true for you. You will only know Jesus greatly and be used greatly by him when at the core of who you are, you are someone who is passionate about him. More than any other cause, more than any other issue, more than any other desire in your life, you want to know this God who loves you so much. And when you seek after Jesus, you will find him. As we're continuing through this 21 days of prayer and fasting, if you say, God, I want to know you more, I want more passion in my heart for you, God will be faithful to do that inside of you. If we come to him and we say, God, I admit, I confess that you haven't been my first love. You haven't been the, the core of who I am. Forgive me of that. I repent of that. And now, God, fill me with that love for you. It says that the Holy Spirit gives us the will and the ability to live a life that's pleasing to God, that the Holy Spirit himself will come and stir up that desire inside of you, and the Holy Spirit will make it so you can actually live out that life being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite examples of this, of, of a passionate person for Jesus, is found in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus has been teaching and uh, having lots of interactions with scribes and Pharisees, has been healing people, and all kinds of incredible things have been happening. And he gets invited to this dinner party. And it says this in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now this is a, a symposia, which is a type of a Greco-Roman dinner where uh, someone important, like a scribe or a Pharisee, would invite some friends over and they would have an honored guest and you would eat your dinner. It was a very formal thing. And then after the dinner, you would have debate. And the goal was that you would try to uh, best your honored guest. So it wasn't a real great thing to go to. Getting invited to that, it's kind of like going to a roast. Um, and so Jesus comes to this, and as a part of this, just a bunch of other scribes and a bunch of other Pharisees that are there, and they're trying to remain very pure. They're ceremonially pure. There's, they have all these washing ceremonies that they have to do before they can engage in a dinner, and they have this idea that if you come into contact with someone who is impure or someone who's a sinner, that you're going to catch their impurity or their sin like a communicable disease. So it's into this uh, very formal dinner, that's going to be full of theological discussions and trappings where all of the people there are very ceremonially uh, pure and clean. They've been cleansed of sin. It's into this place that this sinful woman comes. And what she was, was she was a prostitute. As despised of a person, as big of a sinner as there was in their culture and in their eyes. This was someone that you could catch sin from them if they came into your presence. If they touched you, it was over. You were now impure. And this woman comes in uninvited. This prostitute comes in and she begins to touch Jesus, imputing her sinfulness onto him in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, defiling the whole dinner, ruining everything. And she's not just there, but she's like weeping 
onto Jesus' feet. She's massaging them. She lets down her hair, which was very erotic in that culture. And she's, you know, rubbing his feet. They're trying to talk, and they're reclined at the table, so your head's up by the table, and your feet are out here, and they're all trying to talk. And this woman's just weeping over his feet and washing them with her tears and, and rubbing them. That's some kind of a dinner party. Like, you're trying to, sometimes a baby cries at a party or in church, and you're just trying to, like, keep going like nothing's happening. That must have been one interesting dinner party. When the, when the city prostitute comes in and starts rubbing on you, that is weird. That sounded way worse than I meant it to. My apologies. Oh, life teaching. Hooray. So anyways, we're going to move on. It says, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Now Jesus is the same thing to everybody. Whether you accept him as that or not, he is who he is. I am who I am. You might accept me as something or not, but who you view me to be doesn't change the reality of who I am. But to some of the people, they thought he was a prophet. Some people thought that he was a teacher. Some people thought that he was the son of God. And we're able to see what it was that Simon really thinks about Jesus because he says, if this guy's really a prophet, there's no way on earth he's going to let this sinful woman come in and start touching him. If he was a prophet, he would know that she's a sinner, that she's a prostitute, and he can't be touched by her because now he's going to be unclean and defiled in the eyes of God. So Jesus decides to show him just how much of a prophet he is by answering his inner monologue, which must have been pretty scary. And Jesus says, answering uh, him, he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. See, he's downgraded him from prophet to teacher now. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman was passionate about Jesus. This woman set the model for what our lives should look like and our passion for Jesus. And passion for Jesus comes from recognizing who we are. And when we look at this dinner party, we're going to identify with one of two people. We're going to see ourselves as a self-righteous Pharisee who's got it together, who's pretty good, we've got life pretty figured out, we're not that bad. Or we're going to see ourselves as the sinful woman who's guilty of many sins, who isn't worthy of the love of God, who isn't worthy of his forgiveness or his acceptance because we've messed it up. We've messed it up bad. We're a broken people. But when we look at this story, 
where they're going to say, my life is pretty good, I've got it pretty together, Jesus might have forgiven me of a few things, but it's not that bad, and if that's the way you view yourself, then you won't love him much. You won't be passionate about him, because he hasn't changed your life. He hasn't altered the course of your destiny. He hasn't taken a hold of your heart, because he hasn't done that much for you. But when you look at this story, and you say, I'm the, I'm the prostitute, I'm the one that's hated and despised and rejected, I'm the one who's not worthy of coming into the presence of Jesus, then you're going to understand just how much it is that Jesus has done for you. When you see just how unworthy you are, you become filled with passion and love for Jesus because you know how much it is that you've been forgiven of. Listen, this is what Paul says, and this is what every single one of us can say. We're the chief of sinners. There's nobody worse than me. There's nobody that needed God's grace and mercy and forgiveness more than I needed it. I'm guilty of great sin. I've done bad things to other people, bad things against God. I'm no better than anybody. I can't look down on anyone because I know who I am. I know what I've done. And I know what I deserve. And then it comes from recognizing who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's God. He's God that's come to us. He's God that gave up the glory of heaven and emptied himself of so much to come and to live amongst us and to suffer amongst us. He came to serve us and to lay his life down for us. Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He isn't someone that just gives us advice. He's God himself. And it comes from recognizing what Jesus has done. He laid his life down for us. When we were that sinful woman, when we had broken every rule there was, when we had caused such great harm to others and to God, when we were living as an enemy of the cross, Jesus, who is God, came. And he went to the cross to pay the price for all of our sins. And it wasn't just that we did a couple of bad things. It was that we were broken. We were sinful people. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. But Jesus came and he went to the cross where he took all of our sins upon us. The death that we deserve was the death that he died for us. So that when he looked at us, like he looked at the sinful woman, he could say, your sins are forgiven. Though your sins are many, he didn't make light of sin. He didn't say it's not that bad or it's not that big a deal. It was sin and it was so bad that he had to die for us so that he could restore us so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we wouldn't have to live life continuing in our brokenness, so that we could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that's breaking free from the bondage of sin, living in a new way, receiving life from Jesus, receiving healing, receiving hope, receiving a destiny and a purpose, receiving acceptance and love from God the Father and from the family that he's created. That's what it is that he's done for us. And we didn't deserve it because we weren't the righteous priest or scribe or Pharisee, we were the sinful woman. And when you recognize that, when you recognize who you are, who Jesus is, and what it is that Jesus has done, and that passion is expressed with lavish worship. In recognition of all of those things, 
the woman comes to Jesus and lavishly pours out worship on him. And this is what that worship looked like. Lavish worship seeks the presence of God. She wasn't just forgiven in the one about her life. She wasn't just, okay, God, you've become an accessory to my life. Now I have a better life. It was that she'd had some kind of an encounter with Jesus that changed her life before this dinner. And then she goes in there and she refuses to be denied his presence. There was everything culturally should have told her, don't go in there. You have no place here. You're not going to be accepted. They're going to kick you out. They're going to call you know, the police and they're going to drag you out of this place. You're going to be humiliated. You have no right to go into the presence of Jesus. She said, I'm not going to be denied the presence of my Savior. And no matter what the cost is to me, what the threat is socially, I'm going to go and I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus, my Savior, because my passion is driving me. It's compelling me to do that. That's why David, who had a heart after God, it says that better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. He says, one thing I seek is to see your glory, to find you in the place where your presence dwells. And that's what this woman did. She went in she said, I'm not going to be denied the presence of my Savior. I'm going to seek him out. And that's what we have to do. We have to say that more than anything else in this world, we're not going to be denied the presence of our Savior. I'm going to carve out that time every day where if nothing else happens in my day, I will have encountered Jesus. If everything else falls apart, and this is what Ann and I are always working on, we're always encouraging each other. It's like, hey, you know what? The house is dirty, but we met with Jesus today. Who cares? If our house is clean, which will never happen, but we have kids and we have me. But if we have the greatest house, if we accomplish a lot at work and we do all of these other things and serve all these other places, even if we come and we do a great job at Radiant Church and knock it out of the park, if we haven't encountered Jesus, if we haven't sought his presence in our whole days for nothing. Because the most important thing you will do any day is encounter your Savior. Refuse to be denied his presence. Seek after him. And then secondly, Lavish worship is costly. This alabaster jar that she brought in is worth about one and a half years' wages. Think about that. One and a half years of your wages have been spent collecting this oil in this fine jar. And usually what you do is you just take one drop and you'd put it in your hair and you'd smell better and your hair would look good. But she comes and she just dumps the whole thing. It's like dollars worth of oil. Just dumps it on his feet. This is the most precious, most valuable thing that she has. But she knows that she has something more valuable. And that's Jesus. And a part of the way that we worship, worship means to ascribe worth and value to something. When we worship Jesus lavishly, it's going to cost us something. That's why part of what we do with our tithes and our offerings is it's costing us something to give back to Jesus and express his worth and his value in our lives. Your time is precious to you. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. But when you come and you say, I'm going to give my time to pursue Jesus, that's a precious thing that you're giving him. Paul even says this, my life, the most precious thing any one of us has is our life. We didn't make our life, and one day we won't have this life that we have right now. But when we say, I'm going to choose what, however many days it might be, but my life is going to be lived for Jesus. Paul said this, my life is poured out like a drink offering for Jesus. And that's how we view our lives too. I'm going to be costly in the way that I worship Jesus 
and express his worth and his value in my life because I'm so passionate about him. And then third, it's emotional. Now, I know that we live in a culture that's very intellectual and, and we kind of frown upon emotions and a lot of things, but we're all emotional people. There is something that makes you cry. It might be when Michigan loses a game. It might be when you see the animal abuse commercials on there with, you know, the wings of the angels playing and it stirs up a tear in your eye. It might be, you know, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, seeing your children, whatever, but we're all emotional people. There's something that causes us to become emotional. And when we think about what it is that Jesus has done for us, when we think about who he is and the blessings that he's poured out on us, there should be some emotional response on us. Not that we just want to give in entirely to be emotionally driven and run in our lives. That would lead to ruin. But there has to be an emotional component that stirs us up because we're so passionate about who he is. And then fourth, it's active. Lavish worship is always active. She came to the feet of Jesus. She washed his feet. With her own tears, with her own hair, she's doing something to serve the one that she loves so much. And we all have to do that too. I mean, because the truth is, we're all passionate about something. There's something that you are lavishly worshiping because you're passionate about it. There's something that is costly in your life with your money, with your time, with your energy, all of your resources. Uh, there's something that is uh, emotional to you, something that stirs you up at your core, and there's something that is active, that you're actively serving as an act of worship. What is that? Is it Jesus? Because if it isn't, then you're passionate about something else more than you are Him. And that will always lead you to ruin because all of these other things, as Paul said, compared to knowing Jesus, they're just garbage. My life is too short. God's plans for me are too great. And Jesus is too worthy for me to spend my life on garbage. As you, let's pray together. Let's just ask God to search our hearts and to know us. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning? God, what are we passionate about? Would you show us that? Just real honestly reveal to us where our hearts are this morning. God, have we become more passionate about something else than we are about you? We become more passionate about some cause more than we are your kingdom cause. Have we been pursuing things that are garbage compared to you? God, this morning, we confess our sin. God, for all the other things that we've been more passionate about than you, God, we're sorry. This morning we repent of that. And Father, we ask that you would stir up something new in our hearts, God, that we would be filled with a passion for you. 
And God, it might be a discipline at first to seek after you, but we know it becomes a delight as we continue to do it, as we continue to encounter you. We love you more and more. Jesus, we pray that in Radiant Church that we would be a church filled with people who love you, who are seeking you out, a people who are hungry for you and for your presence. Jesus, a people who walk daily in repentance, uh, continue to live bearing that fruit of repentance in our lives, a people who are changed, a people who are marked and set apart from the world that's around us, a people who walk in love, a people who walk in hope. Jesus, that others would see our joy, our peace, our love, our forgiveness, our humility, and that it would stir inside of their hearts. Jesus, and that your goodness would lead them to the place of repentance, just as it has inside of our hearts. And God, we pray for our city. Jesus, that you would use us as messengers of your gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, the people who have been set on fire by your love who won't be denied your presence, a people who won't be stopped by any hardship, any persecution, by any cost that might come our way that would set itself up to keep us from going after that which you've called us to, that would keep us from seeking your face and from knowing you intimately and deeply. God, that would keep us from reaching and discipling the city that's around us. Jesus, our lives for your glory, our lives poured out as the drink offering for you, Stir us up, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to call my prayer partners forward, and they're just going to be in this uh, front section here. And if there's anything that we can pray for you about, we would love to pray with you. If, if maybe you've, today you said, I want to know Jesus, or I want to know him more, maybe you've walked away from him, and you, or maybe you just don't have a passion for him burning hot in your heart, we would love to pray with you for that. And maybe you're a sickness in your body and you need healing. Maybe you need wisdom for a decision. Whatever it is, God has the answer. And we love joining our faith with yours and praying to see God do something amazing in your life. I encourage you this week, we got 14 days left. February 5th is the end of our fast. Uh, recommit to it. Pick out that time. Pick that place. Pick the things that we're seeking Jesus for. Commit to that fast. And you will be amazed at what it is that you see God do in your lives. Thank you so much for being here today. Go drink some coffee. Eat some snacks. 